Uh, you can open up your Bibles. Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be. Uh, continuing through the book of Mark, my name is Brandon. I am um, a counseling and discipleship pastor here at Bethel. And uh, how, so, some of you know me, some of you are visiting. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that you've been coming lately. Um, I'm an 80s kid. So uh, I'm, I came to Christ at 30, very much in the, the story of Amazing Grace. I came to faith from, from a, a hard background, much of what we'll see in this Mark chapter 5 passage. And I've been here for 17 years now. Uh, but I'm, I, I grew up in the 80s, and I grew up playing those 80s cartridge video games. Uh, I, I, I played with the controller that looked like a, an ice cream sandwich. I, uh, we, we'd have to blow in the, in the game to get it to work sometimes. If I wanted to play with my friends, there were no headsets, there was, there was no streaming. Uh, if I wanted to play with someone other than my little brother, I would need to ride my bike to their house in order to play with them. That's, that's when I grew up. We loved playing games like Contra or RBI or Tech Mobile. But the game that we liked the most was Mike Tyson's Punch-Out!, and so Mike Tyson's punch out, you would, you would be going up against these uh, opponents and, and the big boss at the end was this big-headed Mike Tyson, this caricature of this man. But Mike Tyson was big in the 80s. That game came out in 1987. And in 1988, he had a fight against Michael Spinks. They titled the fight Once and for All. They were going to unify the, the heavyweight belts Mike Tyson was a young up-and-comer, and Michael Sphinx was holding one of, the, one of the belts. And so they titled this fight as the best thing since Frazier Ali. It was a big deal. Looking back on that fight between Michael Sphinx and Mike Tyson, it was no contest. After all the drama, after all the build-up, after all of the conversation... This fight that was the richest in fight history at $70 million lasted 91 seconds. Mike Tyson knocked out Michael Spinks in the first round. And it was no contest. Here in Mark chapter 4 and 5, Jesus is being thrown back to back to back to back title fights. And what we're going to see is that Jesus decisively knocks out every one. Now we're going to go pretty deep today into evil, into darkness. But I want you to know right now, right at the beginning, Jesus wins. Jesus delivers. Jesus comes through. Jesus is king. That's the big idea today. Jesus versus these storms. Jesus versus Satan, Jesus versus disease, and even death is no contest. He wins. And the point of of this story that we're going to look at is to show how deep Jesus can, can go to win. And so whatever it is that you are bringing in today, whatever it is that you're going through today, whatever it is that you're fearing will come Jesus is enough to deliver you. So we're going to have a simple outline today. First, we're going to see the destructive nature of evil in Mark chapter 5. And then we're going to see the different responses to Jesus. So let's read the text together. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. We'll, We'll take this in pieces 
just so we keep it fresh on our minds, start in Mark chapter 1 of, verse, of chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tomb a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountain. He was crying out and cutting himself with stones. So some quick context here. Really, we see that Jesus and the disciples, as Pastor Ken talked about last week, they've came safely through the storm, just as Jesus promised. Now they're landing in this land that they call the Gerasenes. Other accounts call it the Gadarenes, or Gadara. And so we see that in verse 1. Now, it's really important where they're at. Don't let the, the different accounts using different names shake you. This would be, in some ways, uh, the way that we talk about a, a, a region and the, the way we talk about a town. So a few years ago, I went to Italy. And I go to Italy, and they say, where are you from? And I would say, I'm from Streamwood. And I would get blank stares. I, I would, uh, they would come to me and say, where are you from? I would say, I'm from Chicago. And they would want my autograph. It's, it's different whenever we're talking about a region and a town, and that's what's going on here. But the big idea, the the thing that we need to see is important, is that Jesus is intentionally going to the Gentiles, to the other side of the the tracks, to the other side of the river. He's going to these people who are considered unclean. Second, we see that this boatload of Jewish guys is landing right near a cemetery, a place that is ceremonially unclean for the Jews. And then finally, we see that Jesus is meeting this man with an unclean spirit immediately. Everything about this boat dock would be screaming, unclean, unclean. And, and a, a reasonable Jewish man would be staying clear of that. But Jesus is going headlong into it. Jesus isn't on his territory anymore. He doesn't have home field or home court advantage. This is enemy territory. Yet Jesus intentionally engages with this pitiful man. And so let's look at the suffering that evil brings. Mark chapter 5, verse 3, He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. The demons have leveled this man to the ground. He's living like an animal, one made in the image of God, living far beneath what should be or what would be intended. Mark intentionally describes what would be considered insanity in Judaism. And so he starts listing all these points that a Jewish reader would read and say, okay, these are the, these are the marks clinically of insanity. There's literally this spiral of destruction and violence and hopelessness in this man. You can see this if you look back at your Bible too. Uh, the, the repeated terms, tomb, in verse 3 and 5. 
how no man could, could bind him or subdue him in, in the edges of verse 3 and 4. And his shackles mentioned twice in verse 4. Verse 4, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. All of this spirals right to the middle. He wrenched the chains apart. He could not be controlled. He could not be manipulated. He couldn't be helped. Now, you know I like to point out this type of structure. It's called chiastic structure in the Jewish literature. And it helps us to understand the hopelessness of this man. But Mark is making the point, this man is a hard case. People have tried to help him or at least control him before. But you see, there is no human control that can change a person's heart. And that's the point that Mark is making here, that there have been all of these attempts, but no success. This man has tried. His family and friends have tried. Local authorities have tried. He's been put in time out. He's been threatened. He's been ignored. He's been kicked out of his house. He's been arrested. He's been incarcerated. And every attempt has failed. And that's the point here. That's what Mark is building to as we're, we're looking into these accounts and, and Jesus is heading into these title fights. Will he be able to overcome storms? And it was a great storm. Yes. Will he be able to overcome this demonic oppression when it's this deep and it's been through this many people? And the answer will be yes. Will he be able to help the woman who has been to many, many doctors and there's been no help? Yes. Will he be able to help the young girl who has been diagnosed as dead? Yes. So Jesus is over and over and over again coming and and overcoming these different bouts. So we can't control enough to change a person's heart. Mark just keeps on piling up the pitiful nature of this man's condition. Look back down in verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And I told you that we're going to go deep into the discussion of evil because that's what Mark does. This is the clearest account in, in I would say, all of the Bible, definitely in the New Testament, of this type of pain within a human heart and this type of, of manifestation of brokenness. But it's a graphic description of the terrible state of the man's mind through this imperfect tense of the verbs crying and cutting. It's ongoing. There's a consistent pain in this person's life and only a temporary treat of distraction. This is dark. This is hard. This is heavy. And my brothers and sisters, I want you to know that it's not uncommon. It wasn't uncommon there, and it's not uncommon today. There is nothing more discouraging than trying really hard to fix a situation with control or boundaries or consequences only to see the same result at the end of the day. When this happens, you just want to crawl under a rock. When this happens, you just want to go invisible. You want to try to deal with things yourself. You don't want to have another person try to help you because it's always a letdown. 
You feel like you're failing the people around you. You feel shame for not getting it like other people apparently do. Now, I say you, but my brothers and sisters, I felt this way in my life. I've went to bed at 6 o'clock in the evening because I didn't want another long day. I've talked to myself out loud trying to overcome temptation. I've done wrong things because I was good at them. Because I didn't, I didn't want to fail at trying to do the right thing again. That's how I felt in the past. And I know that I'm not alone. And neither are you. Some people do what this man was doing. He was crying out and he was cutting himself with stones. I've heard one person say it this way. When I'm self-injuring, I want to relieve pain and keep on living. Suicide is a permanent exit. Self-injury helps me get through the pain. That person was 15. Here's another one. I do it to stop thinking. The blood, the cutting, gives me something else to look at and concentrate on. If I stop, then the feelings I'm trying to block come back. If I do it for long enough, then when I'm done, that is what I think about. Or the time has passed until I can do something else. Do you feel the weight of Mark's description yet? Do you feel the weight of the suffering of this person yet? It is heartbreaking. It's tragic. And Jesus is going into enemy territory. And he's doing battle. He's he's having this fight to redeem this man. It's tragic that someone would live like this, made in the image of God, physically, emotionally, spiritually. It's a hopeless case. Not only is there deep suffering, but there's violent rebellion against Jesus. And so we're dealing with a suffering sinner. Look back in verse 10. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him into the, or begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter into them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned into the sea. So not only do we see the suffering that evil brings, but we see the rebellion that evil brings. The bell has rung. The match, the bout has begun. Mark uses this word immediately back in chapter 5, verse 2. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there was uh, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He uses this word 41 times as we're running through the book of Mark. But as soon as Jesus' feet touch the ground, this man comes charging at him, a wild man, naked, disturbed, barreling headlong toward the Son of God. Could you imagine being the disciples there? 
I can imagine them that they would probably be looking to the shore of, of the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're looking to, to have the boat dock and they're looking to kiss the ground that they walk on because of the hard night on the water. And this is what they see. As soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, this man is coming barreling at them. But Jesus is up for the challenge and he's up for the challenger. In fact, this is why Jesus came across the Sea of Galilee. He came to deliver this one man. So look back with me in the text. It says that, that the, the, the man comes, fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he says, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high? Now he is acknowledging Jesus as the son of God, no doubt. But don't take this as salvation or as true worship. He bows down because he must. He bows down because that's what people do when they see the Lord. When they acknowledge and understand who he is, they bow down. Whether or not they agree, whether or not they come to faith, they bow down. Flip back a couple of pages, Mark chapter 3. So Mark chapter 3, 11. He's done this a few times already in, in the, the book of Mark, but Mark three eleven gives us a really good explanation. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. The demons believe and know and they shudder. They know that Jesus is already one. The demons know it, but they're not going to go out without a fight. They're not going to go out without making a mess. And so there are three ways that we see the demons in full rebellion against Jesus. First, we see that the demons are coming out swinging by saying, I adjure you by God not to torment us. That word adjure is strange to our words. Some of your translations might use the word beg, but really it means command or charge. And it's linked with this exorcism type of language. If you turn over to Acts chapter 19, um, you can flip over there, Acts 19, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts 19, Paul in Ephesus. Maybe your superscript says the sons of Sceva, and this is the account of the sons of Sceva. We'll start in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to evoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So this word adjure is being used in this way, and what is happening is that these, these second string itinerant demon busters, they're coming in and they are trying to, to do spiritual battle without the Holy Spirit. They adjure, they charge, command the demons, but that doesn't go well. If we were to continue to read in, in Acts, chapter, um, Acts chapter 19, we would see that, that they resist that and that they send those seven sons running back naked and wounded. Much like we find this man in the book of Mark. So they're not bowing down because they love Jesus, but because they must. And they're showing their true colors by commanding about what he must do. They're saying, Jesus, you must do this for me, and then maybe I'll think about obeying you. A second way that, that we see that they're in rebellion, they are trying to intimidate Jesus. Back in Mark chapter 5, verse 9, 
Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion was a Roman military unit made up of more than 5,000 warriors. The idea is clear. Jesus, you think you're going to come in here like you did over there, and you're going to win this match? You don't know who you're messing with. You don't know who you're up against. This guy you're trying to set free, this guy you're trying to save, He's got way too many issues, way too many, to be able to be set free. We are many, we are organized, we are strong, we are ruthless like a Roman army. He's hopeless, give it up. So they're coming in and they are rebelling. They are not only trying to intimidate Jesus, but then finally they're trying to make a mess of things. Look back down into verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. This is talking about the the, the man and the demons. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, let us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and was drowned. Now it's the demons that are begging. The demons are begging Jesus, cast us into the swine. Don't cast us out of the country. They're done. The fight is over. It was no contest. It did not take 91 seconds to KO this round. But they're not going to leave without a fight. They're not going to leave without leaving a mess for Jesus to have to clean up. In some ways, I believe that this was intentional. Because they knew that if they ran that herd of pigs into the ocean, that the townspeople would react the way that they would react. And the only person that would make it out of this day alive would be Jesus and the disciples and the man who is delivered. And so they're wanting to make a mess. I don't know if you've ever known anybody like that. You're in a, you're in a, a situation or a conversation or you're in some type of a conflict and, and they see that they were wrong or they see that they need to change, but they're going to light fire to everything on the way out. They might be wrong, but you're not going to look good in the process. Maybe it's just me. But what we see here is that these demons are continuing to rebel even in their begging. And they're continuing to rebel by making a mess that Jesus is going to have to take account for. So let's take a time out. Maybe some of you are saying, Brandon, I'm not demon-possessed. I don't have a herd of pigs in my backyard, and I don't even own a boat. What, is, what does this have to do with me? So, so stay with me here. This, this is really important. This man's destructive and rebellious existence is different to ours by degree, not by kind. Let me say that again. This man's destructive and rebellious existence is different to your existence by degree, not by kind. Those who do not have Jesus personally as their Savior live under the horrible power of Satan, just as this man did. You can turn over to Acts chapter 26. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts 26. This is Paul telling his story. He, he was a bad guy before he came to Christ. He was a, a murderer. We understand he was a religious zealot. Uh, we might think of him as some type of a, uh, almost a, a, a suicide bomber or some type of a religious um, uh, fundamentalist. But after being saved, Jesus or Paul shares his story. Find this in Acts chapter 26, verse 12. And we'll, we'll just start in verse 14. And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, "Uh, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise up, stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. This is the purpose, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, how? By faith in me. Did you see it? Dark and light. Satan and God. There's no in-between. It is through the forgiveness of your sins that you turn to light. That, that, that through faith in Jesus, that we are transferred from darkness to light. Flip to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians, just a, 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 after Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 1 says this. Talking about God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is by being bought back, by being redeemed, that you are transferred to the kingdom of Christ. There's no, there's no middle ground. Those who do not have Jesus personally as their Savior, live under the horrible power of Satan. But the believer is, uh, and Jesus is rescued from Satan's kingdom and power and now belongs to God. This is the, the good news. This is the gospel. This is that invitation to say, if you are under the sound of my voice, and you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and you believe that he lived as your substitute and your sacrifice, you can be called out of the power of darkness. You can be called out of the the realm and the power of Satan. And you can be transferred and you can be moved into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light. It's that black and white. Would you do that today? Would you place your faith in Christ? Would you understand that it's not based on your works or where you were born or what family you were born into? But it's only on the shed blood of Christ. It's only on the finished work of Christ that we come out from underneath the power of Satan and we enter into the family and the kingdom of light. Those of you who have already accepted Christ as your Savior and we're, we're trying to find some, some way to, 
to, to make this connection to the pigs. Do you play with sin? Do you take it lightly? Do you, do you keep these dark corners of pleasure or security? When we play with sin, we let evil in. We give the devil a foothold. The destruction of these pigs is a clear picture of the mess that sin makes. If Satan could, Satan would do to you as he did to these pigs. But by the grace of God, that doesn't happen. And so do we play around with that? Do we, do we, make, do we make inroads into sinful activities or sinful thoughts? Do we hold on to it? You know, Jesus tells us that the thief comes only to steal and to destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is offering you an abundant life. He's offering you eternal life. He's offering you right now, even in this moment, he's offering you joy and pleasure at his right hand forevermore. Would you take it? Would you put down those secret sins? Because the end of it is as ugly as this story. And Peter tells us the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And it's been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Christian, don't play with sin. Everyone loses. You may not see the mess sin is causing, but it's there. So in the death of these pigs, we see the destructive intention of Satan. And in the death of these pigs, we see the price of deliverance that Jesus is willing to allow. Look back with me in Mark chapter 5. We'll go down to verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So first we see the response of the townspeople. So we see these two different responses. The response of the townspeople is selfishness. Right before their very eyes, they saw Jesus trade the life of 2,000 of his creation 2,000 that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 he called good. And yet he valued this one man's soul as more than those 2,000 pigs. And yet their response is to beg Jesus to leave them alone. They're blinded by their own self-interest. Grace isn't good for the bottom line and discipleship affects the 401k. They couldn't see the miracle of this man's salvation because they were blinded by the cost of discipleship. And there's a real danger in this for us. Jesus had gotten too close to their money, their pleasure, their autonomy. And they're saying, Jesus, go. I know that if I let you in, you're going to demand all of my life. I know what I'm supposed to do to look good. I know what I'm supposed to do to fit in. I'll go to church. I'll live the American dream kind of life, or I'll pursue that. But stay away from my dark corners of pleasure or my secret securities. 
Maybe for us, it's the blind eye that we turn to the homeless woman in the median of the intersection. Maybe it's a young person who needs discipled, but we just don't seem to have the time. Maybe it's the, the men's or the, or the ladies' lunch or, or uh, an invite out, but we just can't spare that $20 to eat or to buy the other person's meal. What is our response when we see somebody saved by Jesus? Do we, do we lean in? Do we say, I cannot believe that Jesus gave his life to save this one who I thought was beyond saving. I'm going to lean into that. I'm going to buy them lunch. I'm going to invite them out. I'm going to, to give them the most valuable things that I have, and that is my time and my attention and my money. I'm going to invest that because Jesus invested his life. Jesus invested 2,000 of his creation for this one man, and yet they asked Jesus to leave. So who in your life could be blessed by you sharing those valuables, sharing your time, your attention, your skill, your money? Let's not lose the contrast here. These respectable townspeople are begging Jesus to leave them alone. The disrespectable wild man is the one begging to grow in grace. Look back down, Mark chapter 5, verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, this is Jesus getting ready to leave. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim it in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So the response of the saved man, in comparison with the response to the townspeople, was a response of service. Here we have the first commissioned preacher by Jesus himself. A demoniac moments ago, naked and wild and uncontrollable moments ago, in an unclean part of town, in an unclean country, nobody else could help. And this is the first person in the New Testament that we see as commissioned to go and preach the gospel by Jesus. You know that's your story? You know that's, that's my story? This, this is all it takes to, to live that Christian adventure. This man saw the courage, the love, the strength of Christ, and it was no contest. This man fell in love with Jesus. He won his heart. He didn't control him with constraints and with consequences and with threats and with rules. But he won his heart. And it was no contest. He says, I want to be with you. I want to obey you. I want to share you with others. My brothers and sisters, is that our heart today? Would you respond in this way to the clear winner, Jesus, holding onto the dark corners of our pleasure and of our security? Or would you do what this man did? 
Would you fall in love with Christ again by seeing the strength and the power and the compassion of Jesus? You see, Jesus as the undisputed champion, king, and savior, would you see him as that and then respond in faith by telling other people about what he has done for you? We might be able to even start that by telling ourselves that. This is Jesus to me. Although my head will tell me something different, although other people might treat me different, this is Jesus to me. And I am this man. And I've been set free, and now I put on purpose and on mission to go and tell other people my story. So, a couple of takeaways as we wind down. First, whatever you're bringing in, whatever you're going through, or whatever you're fearing will come, Jesus is enough to deliver you. That's something that we need to put in our minds and speak the gospel, that truth to ourselves often. And then second, whoever that hard case is, the one that that you think or the one that they think is too far gone for the grace of God to, to affect them, to touch them. You think they have too many issues. Pray for them. Tell them your story. Share Jesus with them. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way that it reveals your character and who you are to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to to believe the words of Scripture, that we would believe the words that we are telling and singing to one another this morning. And I pray for those who are in the room and, and who are watching online and who will be watching in time. Lord, I pray that they would understand your desire for them to be saved for your good and for our good. God, I pray that that they would understand the ability to come to Christ even right now and that in that response, they would tell somebody their story even before they leave. Father, I pray that you would, would save people even right now, that you would draw them to yourself through your Holy Spirit and that at the end of the service, people would be telling stories about how they came to faith. Father, I pray we would be telling one another stories, even this afternoon or as we go to lunch or through the week. Father, may we decide on that one person that is on our heart and that we would, we would share our story with them. And Father, we thank you for the time you've given us in your word and in your house. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.